0: Welcome, everyone, to Roger's List. This is the podcast where we are watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. My name is Steve Guntley, and I ain't pretty no more. I don't know. It's just time happened, I guess. I don't know what it is. I am very excited. I have two guests here today, so I get to uh, keep torturing these boxing puns as long as I can go. In this corner making his grand return after the chimes at midnight episode uh he can fight but you know what he'd rather recite facts about this movie uh it's michael lyden hi mike
1: uh, hey steve you know i just uh, i don't know whether to kiss you or fight you
0: <laughs> first one then the other uh my other guest in the other corner here uh, let, let, let me ask you one thing are you my wife are you are you my <laughs> wife no yes. no answer me are you my wife Yes. <laughs> now I'm I was, scared. I was, I was, I was gonna go the F-word route with that, and then it sounded kind of crass in my head. So I, yeah, I think that's uh,
2: he chose to change his quote too. I
1: did.
0: I did. I found out that they recorded that
1: line twice because oh. they, needed, they needed a television-friendly version, and the television-friendly one was, I don't know
0: whether to kiss him or fight him. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay all right. Fair enough. Oh, it's Nicole Vatiz. Hi. Welcome back, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for living in the same house as me and being on the same show. Yep. Always exciting. Uh, This is a very big episode. Again, I'm going to torture the boxing puns, but we have a very, very heavyweight movie here today. We are talking about Raging Bull, which was released December 19th, 1980, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Kathy Moriarty, Nicholas Colasanto, Teresa Saldana, and Frank Vincent. So... This is a big one for a couple of reasons. Firstly, every decade, Roger Ebert would release a list of what he thought were the 10 best movies ever made, and Raging Bull has made that list pretty much every single time since the list was being done. Uh, This was recently on the, or not recently, but the most recent uh, version of the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time list has this at number four. So this is like a big deal. Uh, this is a big deal movie for a lot of people. So I wanted to start off by asking you two, uh, why did you want to talk about Raging Bull? Nicole, let's start with you. Why did you want to talk about this movie?
2: I think, because I've watched this one time before I did a rewatch this time, and I, I just, I think the performance by De Niro is just really amazing in it. Mm-hmm. Um, And I, I think that's why I wanted to be on this one, just because it was just such a, like... Yeah, truly incredible performance. Where he just transforms. He did so.
0: literally, yeah, very literally transforms. And how about you, Mike? Um, I want to talk,
1: talk about this movie because you asked me to. No, oh, there, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. no, no, no. Um, I, no, I was actually elated when you asked me to talk about *Raging Bull* specifically um, because you know, I, I, there's always like a different movie that introduced me to like a different aspect of filmmaking, like. Uh, like Doctor Strange, loves the movie that taught me what a director was, and and all that. Raging Bull taught me what an editor does yes. <laughs> on a movie, and uh, it, you know I think there, the Raging Bull in particular has three stars. It's got Scorsese as director, De Niro as Jake LaMotta, and Thelma Schoonmaker as the editor. Yes, uh, which I, I believe this was her first time collaborating with Scorsese, and is a collaboration that has actually been more uh, lo- long-standing then his collaborations with De Niro. <clears throat>
0: Excuse yeah, me. yeah, and, those kind and, of went away for a long time.
1: Yeah, and uh, actually a few years back, like about five years back, I had the, um, just on, on a whim, or not on a whim, but I had heard from a friend at work just randomly, because her husband works at a Scarecrow video in Seattle, that yeah. uh, Thelma Schoonmaker was just going to stop by was just going to be there. What? And uh, so I took the day off work, and I, I went and, you know, met her. Um, I got her to sign my, my Blu-ray copy of Raging Bull, which I still have. Wow. Um, and, that, you know, just, I mean, asked her a few questions, but I was, like, pretty starstruck, so I, I had a hard time articulating myself. And then uh, that evening, uh, she was actually doing a uh, presentation and a Q&A for a 35mm screening of Raging Bull down at the... Um, uh, downtown in uh, the uh, Performing Arts Center. So um, I went and saw that, and it was just one of my most treasured film experiences. Um, the film's meant so much to me ever since I first saw it back yeah. in like, late high school. Um, and I've only seen more and more things to appreciate and love about it as time goes on. Um, and it's just a continually instructive movie on how... N- not just, I mean, a- an incredible portrait of uh jealousy m- uh misogyny aggression self-destruction um but also just how to put a movie together in, yeah in, in the most effective way
0: possible that's amazing that you got to meet thelma schoonmacher that's I, like she is she is editing royalty yeah like, i still have chills like she and she's
1: such a by the way such like one of the nicest most like kind people i've i've
0: ever spoken to um that's amazing in context. So, yeah, well, she is. She is one of the two people alongside De Niro who won Oscars for this movie. Probably should have been more still a point of contention. But we'll get into that in a little bit. I think I might. I Well, I don't know if this is a hot take or not. I, I, I you use the word love uh, to describe this movie. And that's not a word I hear often in association with Raging Bull. I feel like this tends to be a movie that you respect more than you love cuz it's not lovable. It's not uh it, it's not an easy rewatch. It's not like a lot of Scorsese films you can rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and they're they're very entertaining. And this is one that's pretty painful to watch especially if you're sensitive to issues with uh spousal abuse or just this this very very toxic culture that's being depicted in this movie. Uh so I I do find it a hard movie to love. I find it a hard movie to warm up to. But I do. I think this has been true with pretty much every Scorsese movie I've ever watched, and it gets better with every rewatch. Like I find something new to appreciate every time I watch it. This is probably like the fifth or sixth time I've seen this movie. Uh, it's it's pretty well embedded in my brain, and I still have a few qualms with it. I still have a few things that just kind of hold it back a little bit for me. But let's let's dig into that in a minute. I want to talk a little bit about Martin Scorsese, because this is the first of many, many, many times we're going to be discussing Marty. He was a personal friend of Roger Ebert. He was one of his very favorite filmmakers, and he appears on this list more than any other filmmaker except for Ingmar Bergman, who only beat him by one movie. So it's also a little moot to introduce Marty at this point, since he is not only still around, but he's still a top-tier filmmaker who's performing at or near the top of his game, even after all these years. He's still incredibly like in the zeitgeist you know like oh yeah yeah
1: the, the, i mean he's still such a tra- he still is a constantly experimental and transformative filmmaker i i feel like people have this idea of scorsese as a mob director which is so interesting to me because yeah as far as i'm concerned he's made like at most 4 straight mob really three because mean streets isn't really a mob movie
0: not really so you got so, what do you got you have uh you like have good good fellas casino. casino the I mean, irishman I, I would say the uh, irishman
1: which which even then you know i would more of i would say a a religious tale about old, a, a old age and ha- having lived a life of violence yeah um, and coming to terms with that you know he, he's just he's such a I mean, all of his films feel deeply personal, but they're all so unique in their approach. And I never really feel like he's made the same movie twice, except maybe Casino is basically
0: Goodfellas again. I remember seeing Wolf of Wall Street uh, like seven years ago and just thinking like, how is this like a 70 year old filmmaker, like still making something that's this like fresh and exciting and new and energetic, you know, like it's it's really very impressive that he can still do that after all this time. So a little bit about Scorsese. He was born in 1942 in New York City. He was the son of Sicilian immigrants. And when he was a kid, he had really severe asthma, so he wasn't allowed to go out with all the other kids and play. So his parents took him to the movies a lot, and he became a little obsessive about it. He used to go to every single movie that he could see. And then when he became of age, he wanted to become a film director. So he went to NYU Tisch School of Performing Arts, and he made a few outstanding uh, student films, He directed uh, his feature debut, uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door?, which stars a young Harvey Keitel, and it was edited by Thelma Schoonmaker. I I think that was their first collaboration uh, overall, and then I think she dropped out for a while. Um, So, uh, yeah, they they would both go on to collaborate him for the rest of his career. His big break came in 1973 with Mean Streets, which he shot with Keitel and an up-and-coming Robert De Niro. And then three years after that, he would reunite with Taxi Driver, and uh, the rest is kind of history from there. We're going to go into more detail on all of those movies separately, because they are all on the list. I think the important thing to note about this particular stage of Scorsese's Scorsese's career is that he was at a bit of a low point. He had just come off his first big commercial and Critical Failure, which is a musical called New York, New York. uh, And he was hopelessly depressed and addicted to cocaine, which caused a nearly fatal overdose that put him in the hospital. While he was in the hospital, he was visited by his good friend, Robert De Niro, who brought him the book of Raging Bull and said, I think we should make this, but I'm only going to do it if you kick this drug thing, which he did. And Scorsese still credits that moment with saving his life. So this movie literally was like therapy. This was this was rehab for Scorsese as he was going through it. And I do want to jump a, uh, talk a little bit about Robert De Niro since this is the first time he's coming up on this show. Uh, he was kind of at the height of his powers when this movie was made. So he was, he broke out with mean streets and taxi driver. He got an Oscar for playing young Vito Corleone in Godfather part two. And he was just off a starring role in the best picture winner of 1978, the deer Hunter. Uh, So critics and audiences were kind of already lining up behind him to say like, okay, this is the guy, this is the next big guy, like who's going to be the greatest actor of his generation. And so everything that he was doing was kind of pushing the boundaries at that time. Which is kind of weird to think about when you look at De Niro now, right? Like, Nicole, I remember when we were watching the AFI list where De Niro comes up a lot. Like, I remember you being really taken with him and really impressed by him because you were more used to seeing, like, latter half De Niro, right?
2: Yeah, which is just so bland. And, you know, he's always just playing this old man who's (laughs) upset about something. He's playing a dirty
0: grandpa a lot of the time. Like, most of these movies, he's a dirty grandpa, Occasionally, he's a Showtime, I guess. I don't know. Or a Meet the Parent.
1: It, you <laughs> know, it, in, in his defense, I, I do think he kept up a pretty stunning pedigree for like three decades before he oh. was just like, you know what? There's a lot of money to be made in just showing up in, in Ben Stiller movies. and
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. He did this mob comedy in 1999, which was like a big broad across the board hit. And everyone's like, oh, my God, we can we, you know, De Niro could do comedy. Let's let's put him in every comedy now.
2: And I I think that's where I was introduced to him, which, you know, I I wasn't raised watching like old movies like this. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's more likely like if you're around, well, even like Mike, you're a bit younger than me. If you're around your age, like was your was your first De Niro like meet the parents or something like that? It it probably was. But the thing is, I I couldn't
1: like register that as Robert De Niro. Like that's probably literally the first time I saw him. But the first time I like knew the name Robert De Niro was probably Taxi Driver, and just because I was, like, really getting into Scorsese in, like, late high school, so I was just like, yeah, Mean Streets, uh, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, um, and, and like, that's kind of how I got to know him. And then kind of taking a step beyond that and finding, you know, l- looking at his work beyond Scorsese even, um, and just seeing what an incredible actor he was, and a revolutionary actor, even kind of, like, taking the... Um, taking the method approach kind of even beyond what Brando and, and like Burt Lancaster and whatnot did before him. Yeah. Um, And, and just adding this level of, of rawness and, and like really kind of shedding all sense of it, even being a performance was uh, really
0: startling. You watch him now and you read about his back behind the scenes, like motivations and everything like that. And he, he was so unbelievably focused and like interested in pushing the boundaries and really like, Pushing himself to see what he can do. And he was kind of the big driving force behind Raging Bull. Like he was kind of he he was the one who saw the glimmer of an idea in the uh, autobiography, which he didn't like. Like he remember he said he read the book. He thought it was written amateurishly, but he thought like there's a there's a story here. There's something to this. And he was instrumental in, like, casting a lot of the people in this movie and, like, bringing in, you know, a lot of this was just kind of built off of his instincts. The decision to shut down production for four months to gain 60 pounds was his idea. And it was an incredibly dangerous idea that shouldn't have worked as well as it did, because I feel like it's it's putting a lot of pressure on other actors. But he he really raised the bar with Raging Bull.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and Scorsese kind of had a similar approach to him, too, to the book, because he, he didn't really like it either. Um, but he, he fixated on particular scenes and he, he understood that, and this is something I kind of wish that every, uh, every filmmaker doing a biopic would, would internalize that yep. you're never going to get this man's life into a movie or any person's life into a, a two hour narrative film. So instead he fixated on this, this, this idea of self-destruction and, um, projected rage and the sense of atonement almost that like the, this, this self punishment. Um, I think the line that he had, he latched onto was he fought like he didn't deserve to live. Yeah. And, uh, and, and just kind of making that essentially the thesis statement of the movie and building out from there rather than just trying to, you know, cram the life of Jake LaMotta into a film, because I think that just can't be done.
0: That's the brilliant thing. I think anytime you have a biopic that starts with someone like as a child and follows them to their death, I'm going to tune out because I know we're going to gloss over a lot. It's going to be a very big showy performance, but it's not going to have a lot of substance, you know? So I think a good like parallel to this, there's a movie that came out in 2016 called the Bronx Bull, which is based on the same book. Uh, and It is exactly that. It is a uh, birth to death kind of take on Jake Lamotta, who was not dead at that time. But it was like, it was letting Lamotta tell his own story. So it had a couple of flaws to it. But it was also shown that this was all being caused by an abusive father. And then there's some stuff about him being an enforcer for the mob, which like Scorsese was smart enough to cut from the movie. And like it, it's that's a good like distinction. If you want to see like a way this could be done well versus a way this could be done poorly, watch the Bronx um, Bowl.
1: Why would anyone make a movie, another movie about Jake LaMotta when this right? already
0: exists? Like, I know. Oh, it, it my was, God. Yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> So a little bit about the development of this movie, because it's fascinating, and then we can jump into a discussion. But so as I mentioned, uh, De Niro was one of the the one who brought the source material to Scorsese's attention. Uh, The book Raging Bull, My Story came out in 1970. It was the autobiography of Jake LaMotta, and uh, he brought it to Martin Scorsese while he was shooting Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which is back in 1974. So they've been working on this for a while. Uh, Scorsese had to be convinced because he didn't like the book. He hated sports and he didn't understand the sports, the, the, the appeal of the story saying like the story of a boxer and his brother trying to outrun the mob had been done to death. Uh, but after Scorsese's overdose, he began to see the story in a new light and he found ways to tell this story in a way that kind of deconstructed the, the sports hero mythos. So the original draft of the script was written by uh Mardick Martin and it didn't even have a role for Joey LaMotta, the brother, Uh, but he became an integral character when Paul Schrader was brought in to do a rewrite. Paul Schrader, of course, uh, the writer of Taxi Driver and recently the director of the amazing movie First Reformed. Uh, so other than De Niro, the cast was unknown. Um, Kathy Moriarty was 19 years old and De Niro picked her because he saw a picture that was taken for like the New York times of a disco scene. She was like the centerpiece of the picture. And he thought, A, she was really beautiful. And B, she looked exactly like Vicky LaMotta. The fact that she could act was kind of gravy. Like no one really expected that. But it turns out she's like a pretty amazing actress. And then Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci was a child actor for for a couple years. And uh, by the time this movie was being made, he'd been retired. He'd been out of acting for about five years, was working in an Italian restaurant De Niro just happened to see him uh, playing a, a thug on a TV show and just kind of had an instinct about the guy. And then they reached out to him at his Italian restaurant and asked him to be in this movie. And both he and Kathy Moriarty got Oscar nominations for that. And that that's the the, the amount of luck that went into that is just like insane. Just being picked out of the street like that is insane to me. C- could you imagine
1: uh, you're, you're like a young 19 year old actress or not even an actress at that point? just just a, just a girl going out. to a disco and, and you have to play opposite Robert De Niro but <laughs> yeah
2: the funny thing i read though was that part of the reason they picked her was because she didn't actually really know who he was because you know she was young like yeah, yeah. a lot of young people like don't pay any attention to like who's a oscar nominee or whatever so she didn't even realize and that was kind of she was and- able to
0: and Pulled She she kind of grew up in these neighborhoods that are being depicted in the movie, so she had an authentic, authenticity to her that really worked in her favor. Uh, yeah, so during
1: it, the... Tr- oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and, and Joe Pesci too, like, I, it, it's weird. I feel like there's still this cultural association with him and De Niro as almost brothers, even yeah. though they've really only been in a handful of movies all directed by Scorsese together, and... I believe this is the only one where they're actually playing brothers
0: or even characters
1: yeah. who are close at all other than the Irishman.
0: Yeah, it might be true. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, I don't think he and uh, uh, Tommy had very many scenes together in Goodfellas. I you guess know, casino, like they're, just, casino they're close too, but casino is you know, the one I've seen the least. I think me, I saw that too. once. I don't really remember it very well. Yeah. Uh, but so during the training sequence, De Niro worked closely with Jake LaMotta behind the scenes uh, with the real raging bull serving as his boxing coach. And, uh, apparently he was had a natural gift for it, and Lamotta was very impressed. He said he was a tough enough guy that he was really like getting it. So De Niro famously put on 60 pounds for the latter part of this movie since he and Scorsese didn't want to do any like phony looking prosthetics. Uh, and this was accomplished by shutting down the production and De Niro moved to northern Italy and just went on a pasta eating binge. He just ate 888888 and just spent 4 months doing nothing but eating in northern Italy. Which sounds kind of amazing to me. I don't know.
2: (laughs) Probably drinking.
0: Probably drinking. Yeah, a lot of drinking. (laughs) A lot of drinking. Yeah. And this really took a toll on his health. He was having heart palpitations. His his speech was getting slurred. He was having trouble breathing. So when you see him struggling for breath later in the movie, that's not a performance choice. That's De Niro. He effectively had to go from the best shape of his life to the worst shape of his life in four months, which is insane. I, I believe they even cut the
1: shooting of that segment of the film, I think it was originally supposed to be like three or four weeks and they did it in 10 days because he just, it, it would be even more catastrophic for his health if he had to be in that shape for any longer. Oh, and God. so he, he could immediately start losing weight as soon as it was, as soon as filming wrapped. And, oh man, it, it really comes up on screen. He looks miserable. I mean, like, not yeah. not just not just the way he, he looks like so uncomfortable in his own body
0: (laughs) yeah yeah he does he really does and it took him a while to recover from this like like it's hard to take off that much and uh you know but then you see him like what is it like nine years later in uh cape fear and he's like super jacked again so i don't know that some people can just do that i don't know uh but that's just kind of indicative of the kind of dedication he brought to this and this was kind of an unheard of thing at this time nobody had done such a dramatic physical transformation before. And I think it's since been like bested by Christian Bale who, who did something. I forget what he, he lost some insane amount of weight for the machinist. Like I I I forget exactly what it was, but
1: yeah. Gaining weight. The record was broken. I believe eight years later or seven years later by uh, Vincent D'Onofrio in full metal jacket. Right. And, And he beat him for like 10 pounds.
0: I always forget. Like I, I, this is dumb, but I recently rewatched *Adventures in Babysitting*, which has <laughs> in it, and he's like this tall, lean, like handsome man. And I'm like, this is the same year as *Full Metal Jacket*. Like, what? What happened? I didn't wow. know this. So yeah, the the move, this move worked. Uh, this this big bold move that they took worked. This is often considered De Niro's best performance, and it's usually talked about as one of the, if not the best performances ever put on film. Uh, he won an Oscar for the role, of course, which is his second, and in the, the film was nominated for eight Oscars in total, including Best Picture, which it lost to Ordinary People. But as Ebert noted in his essay, time has rendered a different verdict. I think that was a good way to put it. And Ordinary People, not a movie I hate. I, I like Ordinary People. It's, I,
1: feel, I feel such a weird—because like, I want to say, oh, that's ridiculous, that's horrible, but I've never seen Ordinary People, so I, I can't oh, say— <laughs>
0: it's, it's a very well acted like family drama, but it's not going to stick with you or, or revitalize cinema the way this would, you know? So, all right, let's, I'm, I'm done yammering. Let's, let's jump into this movie because uh, there's so much to talk about. Uh, I felt brought into it right in the beginning because uh, immediately they made in the very opening monologue, he makes references to Richard the third and the bandwagon, which are both movies I just covered on this podcast. So look at that synergy. That is nothing, but uh, so, all right. So our, our impression of Jake LaMotta from the very beginning is of a blunt, stupid, selfish asshole. Like normally I, I think this movie is so intent on immediately deflating the mythos behind sports figures, because normally you would, if you were going to see that in a movie or in a biopic in any way, it would be as part of his downward spiral, you know, we would need to warm it up we would need to see him like being a sweet charming guy who's corrupted by all the fame and all the no 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 Jake LaMotta is an asshole from the word go like the boxing doesn't make him worse the boxing doesn't make it better in fact the boxing is more or less incidental to the story that Scorsese wants to tell here for as much as this is revered as a boxing movie this could be anything this could be any sport for as much as like, uh, Scorsese cares about the ins and outs of it. Am I crazy about that? I don't know. No, would, this be, it, would this work as Jake LaMotta, a lacrosse player? I mean,
1: <laughs> it, the only way it would be less effective is that um, Scorsese described the boxing really well. He said that it seemed to him the life, uh, well, just life in general, but particularly the life of this man, uh, it Reduced to its most basic and primal aspects, you yeah. go into a ring to hit this person and get paid for it. Well, you hit them and they hit you back, and you get money. Like it's yeah. just, it's the most stripped down way to contextualize his life as sort of the series of brutality and punishment, and and also that specifically Jake LaMotta very much viewed it as equal doses of both. He he was just as much took just as much pride in his ability to. Oh God! I'm going to quote Stallone unintentionally, yeah. but to keep getting hit and keep moving forward, um, as much as he could, as much as he valued his ability to, you know, actually box and knock out the other guy.
0: Well, but I mean, think think about this movie in comparison to Rocky. Like Rocky is very interested in the training, in the 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 technical sport of it, like the 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 details of like the decisions, things like that. You don't see any of that in this. Right. Yeah,
2: I think the biggest concentration is more on like, oh, I'm and there's a lot of like body image things in this that are kind of bothersome. Like he he's always talking about and this is very much a thing with like boxing because they want to be at the right weight. But just he's always like, oh, I'm eating too much or drinking too much or I'm trying to lose all this weight. And I think that's the closest we get to training for him. It's all about what he's eating and what his weight is.
0: Or I guess pouring cold water on his dingus, which a technical term is the dingus. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah the <laughs> I mean, <laughs> You're yeah, yeah, yeah. reading
1: that in a biology textbook.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the dingus malingus is uh, the Latin for that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but you're exactly right. Like like we, we don't really see, there's no training montage. We don't see... He he doesn't hit any, like, sides of beef. He hits people. And he's just kind of a monster from the get-go. It's not even until he meets Vicky for the first time that we see even a glimmer of charm, you know? Like, like the, the little moment where he shakes her finger through the fence, you know? Like, that's the first time you could see why anybody would maybe want to be involved with this dude who's just such a sadist and such a dick.
1: Yeah, that actually, that whole sequence was, like... It's grown on me over time because, uh, he, you know, at first I was like, "This seems just really slow, just kind of arbitrarily slow." And then I, I, I heard, I heard it described as, you know, he it was likened to a similar scene in On the Waterfront, but with, a, I mean, with a totally different emotional core to it. Sure. But whereas instead of whereas like On the Waterfront had dialogue, this has gesture and action and behavior, and viewing it through that lens, it made all the sense that it, it suddenly clicked because yeah. it, th- these are about people who k- don't really vocalize their thoughts. It's entirely through gesture and, and how they interact physically with one another. And I, I think that carries through a lot of this movie actually, which was despite, you know, having two pretty prolific screenwriters, uh, behind it, what did have a lot of improv in it. Oh, yeah. Um, because they just would keep going on on set, and Scorsese loved it and encouraged it, and it actually gave them a lot to work with in the editing room. Um, and, and honestly, it did help I think elevate the performances into something a lot more naturalistic.
0: And this kind of helped define like the sound of of Little Italy, New York. You know that we think of like this. This is the neighborhood that Scorsese grew up in. This is how people talk to each other. And I think he felt that with those two actors. Like, I definitely want to shout out Joe Pesci in this, because as much as De Niro kind of w- gets the well-deserved credit for this movie, I feel like Pesci is nearly his equal in every way. And he has to do something very different and much, much smaller. But like the opening scene where he's trying to get him to punch him, well, when he's trying to when Jake's trying to get Joey to punch him and he doesn't want to hit him, he's refusing. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. But he's. Lamada does not let down. And that's the defining trait of his character is that he never lets down. When he gets focused on something, he's going to find like follow it through until everything is destroyed. And so in this, like he wants his brother to hit him. And he's not going to let down until his brother hits him. And his brother is going to be cowed. You know, as much as he's tough talking him and like trying to talk back to him, you could see in Pesci's eyes and like the, the little gestures when he looks away. It's like, you know, he's going to do it. You know he, he's gonna he's gonna get talked into it, and he's trying to stand his ground. But you know he's eventually just gonna be talked into doing it, whether he wants to or not. And also you know
1: the, the genuine concern in his eyes too, because he's he knows his brother has this in- incredible knack for for self-flagellation and self-destruction that only escalates more and more throughout the movie, and and eventually it does spill out onto you know, his loved ones and, and Joe Pesci himself. But it's, I, I do, I did always get that sense of his genuine concern for Jake. That is, I mean, that's never something articulated deliberately, but I think he did a really good job of,
0: of, of portraying that. Yeah. I I think he's really excellent in this movie. I don't know. And yeah, so the, the picture that we're getting of Jake is not terribly flattering. Uh, you know, and we we get the great moment where he first meets Vicky at the pool. He first sees her. And we get this very cool trick that Scorsese is going to use throughout the movie in that uh, time slows down a little bit. Like the sound doesn't go away. There's no like musical montage or anything, but it, we're in slow motion. And this is what we see. This is what uh, uh, Jake sees when he becomes fixated on something. So in this case, it's, he's fixated on her beauty. Later, when he's looking at her or at Salvi or any of these other people, it's because he's he's teeming with this jealousy that he just can't get past. And it really helps bring us into his mind in a very subtle way. It's just like the world kind of goes away except for this one thing that he needs to destroy. And it, it's a really beautiful shot. Um And Moriarty in this opening scene, it's a very interesting courtship when he first meets Vicky and they're kind of going back and forth because he's very blunt and kind of confident in telling her what to do. You know, come closer. Come, let me put your arm around you, you know, but she is matching his gaze at every moment. And you get the sense that this is not a girl who's going to do something if she doesn't want to do it, you know, so there's they're, they're kind of. They're they're sparring in a sort of way. Like they're like she's she's proving that she's his equal, right? Like I don't know. Are you seeing that? Yeah. Um I, I
1: the the movie my mind kept going to, just as a as a comparison of another like landmark performance by a larger than life actor, um and, and someone having to act against him is There Will Be Blood, and and I, yeah. one, another one of my favorite movies. But I, I will say, and, and I think that this is actually intentional, but th- that Paul Dano is very much outmatched and overpowered by Daniel Day-Lewis. I think that's intentional in that film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I would never actually, despite the uh, in- incredible disparity in prestige of, of these two actors going into it between uh, Kathy Moriarty and Robert De Niro... I would never describe their on-screen relationship in that way at all. I think, in no way, um, other than his physical intimidation, yeah. uh, is she ever overpowered by him as a performer or as a or as a character. I, I think that she really is able to hold her own, which is it, 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 it entirely a testament to Kathy Moriarty's performance.
0: Yeah, I think there's a there's an impulse to treat like an abused character like this as like weaker than or, or as scared or as cowed. But even when the beatings are at its worst, she still has a defiance to her, um, which sometimes, yeah, which leads to some kind of uh, dramatic consequences as we see later in the movie. But yeah, I think they're, they're evenly matched. I, I want to broach a question here that has been bugging me ever since the first time I watched this movie. Uh, do we think Robert De Niro is a bad kisser? Yes, or it looks, is, it, looks
1: <laughs> it looks awful. Like it just looks like such an unpleasant experience. I was thinking about the
0: same thing. His lips are like,
1: <laughs> he's like consuming her. It's gross. I don't. It's v-
0: it's very chaste and thin-lipped. But but I guess my question is, is De Niro a bad kisser, or is Jake lamada a bad kisser? Is this a character choice? I
2: think it's a character choice, honestly. Um, yeah, it feels it,
0: right for the character. Yeah. Because he doesn't know love, you know? He only knows, like, violence. That's the only thing he's really kind of good at, you know?
2: Yeah, and, like, consuming something, like, overpowering it. Yeah. you know.
0: I just remember watching this the first time, just like, oh, this is, like, this is so anti-sexy, like, the way that this thing is, like, rolling out, you know? There's just, there's no romance to any of this, and, like, they're just so kind of cold and blunt with each other. It is also
1: it is interesting that the the closest you come to a sexual encounter between the two, is literally just another test for Jake LaMotta to, essentially punish himself. Yeah, uh, because it's it's before a fight. He's not supposed to you know, not supposed to have any sex at all before a fight. I I get that's a thing I suppose. Um, Yeah, and and he wants to bring himself as close to that edge as he can, and then immediately dispel it, and it turns again into his own kind of you know flagellation. And uh, I do find it interesting that that is the most intimate moment you get between them in terms of genuine uh, like sexual chemistry. In and the she's still film. being
0: she's being used. She's like and, a tool and in tossed this away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I, let's talk about the boxing, okay? Because I think this is where uh, Thelma Schoonmaker really gets to kind of take over the movie and really shine. The boxing sequence they're they're so incredible because. While the rest of the movie is very straightforward, like, realistic, like, a slice-of-life kind of story, the boxing scenes go into high fantasy. Like, the ring is never the same size. Like, we get all these insane, like, animal squeals coming in, like, over the soundtrack. We get all these slow-motion stylistic shots and blood spraying everywhere, opera music. Like, it's very grandiose. And
1: and also, no no two fights are quite super real in the same way they all have a unique style to them one of them is shot entirely through long lenses with uh they actually had fire or something generating smoke um under the camera that created oh, yeah. this mirage effect and I, I think that was when uh i think that was when jay kind of experienced this this surreal loss too i think it was his first bout with joe lewis in the movie oh yeah 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 um there's another one later i think it's the second to last fight where he's kind of phoning it in most of the time. And then uh, in the 13th round, uh, which actually happened in real life, he, he took his opponent down in like a minute. And the it, one of the few times in the movie where the camera is on the outside of the ring, but then as soon as Jake LaMotta gets back into the fight and is engaged, the camera pans or uh, whips through the ropes and comes oh, back yeah. into the ring, which is just one of the most incredible camera moves I've ever seen. Um, and then there's the psycho fight. Which is the last fight in the movie?
0: Yes, yeah. Which (laughs) is uh, the the long dolly shots and like the the slow motion that this shot of like uh, Sugar Ray like looming over him. What did you want to say? Oh, never mind. Sorry. Uh, uh, Yeah. So like, I think this these are just they're so heightened and they feel so like unreal that it's clear that this is like his escape. Like this is. This is where he goes, like this this is where he goes to get away from everything and where he goes to punish himself and to absolve himself. And that's the interesting thing. Like, we don't really know what he's punishing himself for. Like, we never get that kind of context about who his parents were or about what happened in his life before. You know, from doing research, he he killed a man in a fight when he was in high school. He spent some time in a reformatory. That's never really brought up in this movie. Uh, so it's all, it all has to be kind of contextualized. But he he's he's beating himself up for something like he he enjoys taking the abuse for some reason or the other and that's why he kind of tears through everyone in his life and just kind of uh uh sows chaos everywhere he goes
1: you know something about that character too i think if you asked him what you're being punished for he would not be able to tell you He he admits at one point i've done a lot of bad things but i, I don't even think he could name them if he tried it just that, that just kind of seems like in his nature he he just will <laughs> he will perpetuate this 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 toxicity and this violence but without any sort of self-reflection it's just kind of this process of of sin and atonement almost automatically without thinking
0: but then look at the world that he brings that he lives in like how many times did you notice that just a random fight broke out on the street or like in a restaurant or in a bar like violence is like the music of his world. Like violence is everywhere. They don't even notice it. Like I feel like if any of us were to see a fight break out in a restaurant, like it would be all we could talk about for the next week. Mm -hmm. Like I would be freaking out. First of all, what are they doing in restaurants? It's COVID times people. But secondly, like I don't know that I've ever seen anybody like punch another person in my life. I mean, maybe that's like my, well, I probably have, but you know, it's been rare enough that like, I don't really have that, that instant recall. But like, this is just omnipresent in this world. You know, you can't go to the pool without a fight breaking out. You know, and uh, that's a very interesting way of being able to kind of like show and not tell a little bit about the world that they live in. Yeah, which is uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a great choice. Um, I wrote in my notes just the most toxic men ever. And I think that was in relation to uh, so after when when the 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 two brothers and their wives are sitting around and like De Niro starts sniping at Vicky. And then Pesci just immediately starts tearing into his wife. Kind of, you you get the sense that it like you don't get the sense that he's a nice guy, Joey. Like he, he's he's clearly like not very nice to his kids and family. Like we see him later, he's threatening to stab his son if he doesn't like <laughs> eat his food. You know, but like it, it feels like it's being passed, like a baton being passed. It's like, all right, I'm being shitty to my wife now. You got to be shitty to your wife, right?
2: Yeah, like, like don't make me, don't make lo- make me look like. I'm bad. we're yeah. all bad.
0: Or that like I'm weaker than my brother or something yeah. like that. It's it becomes this power play, and because of the era, because this is like the 40s, 50s, 60s, like these women are very much trapped in these marriages. It's not that they don't think they can do better or want to escape. They feel very much trapped. You know, whether it were, this is one of the few films that Scorsese did where religion really doesn't play a big part uh, or a part really at all, but. You would imagine, like, you know, you're an Italian-American family in this part of the country at this time. You're probably pretty strictly Catholic. You're probably brought up to kind of honor the sanctity of marriage no matter what. So these women are kind of trapped with these, like, brutes, these animals, as the word keeps getting tossed around. The word animal gets tossed around a lot in this movie. And that's kind of what they act like a lot of the time. You know, they're just, they're squabbling over food scraps and just starting fights for no reason.
2: Yeah, and it's just like, like, Vicky was like 15 when he met her yeah like she didn't know what she was getting into
1: yeah it's it's always i always forget that at the beginning she is 15 years old i know it's is, great and the actress, mean, pretty, its own, yeah, yeah. the actress is only 19 but yeah this is only 19 i think later in the film she's 20 um she she and or well i'm sorry i think she's 20 before sort of the jump forward to retired lamada and Honestly, she is able to convincingly portray each phase of that character's life without it ever feeling discordant and also without it ever feeling entirely static, like she's able to kind of grow with the character despite, you know, not just despite only being 19 years old and, and not necessarily having the center stage in this film.
0: Yeah, I loved getting the one little burst of color that we got when we're looking at home movies. Which was a little jarring, and it made you realize, like, oh, wow, I wasn't even thinking about this as a black-and-white film. But apparently they decided to do black-and-white uh, because they were looking at it in editing, and just, like, the 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 colors were just a little off. And also, Scorsese was worried about not being able to get away with that much blood if it was all in bright red, you know, color. Like, the, the, the blood that they use in this movie might be too vicious to be released in theaters, so it it kind of became a, a it's it is an artistic choice, but it was also a choice of like necessity to kind of get around things.
1: And it's beautiful, black and white. Like it, it's not it's not high contrast to the point of being like, you know, like like I don't know something like post digital, like Sin City, where it's so jarring. But it is like it's definitely heightened from traditional yeah. black and white. And it's,
0: I mean, it just looks so crisp and beautiful. I i love the photography in this movie. Oh, it's so gorgeous. Um, Absolutely. Michael and, Chapman, RIP uh, re- oh, recently passed. Uh, yeah, did some, did some amazing work in this.
1: Apparently film, the Schoonma- Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Steve. Oh, no, good. Uh, apparently film, the has got a story where she was, um, uh, going around after the film was released to like, just kind of see how it was being projected. Um, Specifically, with focus on that uh, montage, uh, intercutting stills from fights with uh, the the home movies, and uh, one one projectionist cut out the color bits in that montage. Oh, because, really? Yeah, because he's like, yeah, someone spliced the <laughs> so, someone spliced a color film into this black and white movie. I, I took it out.
0: <laughs> it just, That's crazy. <laughs> just
1: butchered one of one of the most like poignant, beautiful sequences in the film.
0: I mean, it's, it's interesting too, that that color sequence is like, that's where we're seeing the families be happy. You know, that's the, that's the most we get to see of like an uninterrupted happy moment. Uh, But we start to really get a sense of Jake's jealousy at being kind of the, the premier thing that dominates his life when uh, his wife makes just an off the cuff remark about a fighter he's about to go up against who is very good looking. And he finds, Fixates on that so much that he beats that kid unrecognizable, you know. Hence the the famous line, "He ain't pretty no more." Uh, really, I mean th- that's such a vicious way. And it, things just get worse from there. Like once he's attained Vicky or whatever, or captured her, or ensnared or whatever whatever term you want to use, he is so freaked out by losing her or by anybody else, like sniffing around his territory. So again, animal. The animal Im- imagery comes back again. Like he's. He's so quick to fight against perceived slights. Now, I don't know if I think that Vicky cheated on him ever. Um, no, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think she did. I don't it think not, she did.
2: At least not when he thinks she did. At
0: not when
1: maybe
2: she thinks she
0: did. It could have yeah. happened
2: after that, but not yeah. when he's freaking out about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, she obviously didn't do anything with Joey or with Salvi or anything like that, but you know, that was just kind of something she said to get under his skin, but... Yeah, I don't think she ever really did. The movie leaves that kind of an open question. You know, she is like young and beautiful and likes to go out and likes to get attention. But like that doesn't mean anything, nor would it justify any of his behavior. But the fact that like there's a seed of doubt so that like that paranoia can keep growing, you know? Yeah, I think
1: her affection for Jake is genuine, which is part of what makes it so I I mean, really so tragic that I mean, he's effectively incapable of even viewing her as a human being and, you know, unable to express himself in any way other than violence and, and possessiveness and abuse. Um, and he starts I, becoming
0: I, so much more comfortable with just, uh, well, I don't know. I guess he's never like not comfortable. He's, he's always like himself. There's a scene where he's like kind of pacing around before a fight in like a, a living room, in somebody's living room. They're having a party for him. He's just spitting on the carpet. Yep. And then he and like that, takes that, Vicky that, that, back. Actually, and like, that always pissed me off so much. <laughs> that he spit on the carpet. It's just so rude. Who it's incredibly that? rude.
1: Yeah, who'd and, do that? And, and and I mean, yes, I putting, putting aside the like actual
0: physical and emotional abuse he puts the people in his life through, What an asshole. What an asshole. Yeah. I mean, and that's the same scene where he just feels comfortable just, like, smacking his wife around in front of a room full of people who are, like, here to root for him, you know? And, you know, we we get the sense that, like, his great ambition is to to get a shot at the title, to be a contender. But he doesn't really vocalize that himself. Like, you get a, a sense it's a little bit of Joey kind of pulling the strings as his manager. But, like the one really kind of uh, uh, human sympathetic moment we get is when he has to throw that title fight and he's sobbing back uh, in, the, in the back room. Like, that's the one kind of sense that you get that this really was important to him. But he also very casually agreed to throw the fight. Like, the idea was brought to him and he's just like, yeah, what else? You know, he, he just he just does it. But, well, I yeah. also
2: think it was, he didn't know how hard it would be for him because he, he thought the other person would be like a worthy opponent. But then he was like, but no, like it was, it was so hard to do it because the other person, and I don't know how true it is, but he, he was like the other person shouldn't have won. Like they, they didn't really deserve it. Like,
0: yeah, he was clearly like stumbling after one hit, you know? So he felt like he's not just throwing it. He's throwing it like to somebody who didn't deserve to, to like, to beat him.
1: It, it, uh, it also seems very true to his character that if he's going to, if he's going to lose a fight it's going to be in the most like blatant try nothing way possible to, you know, he, he's not going to l- make it look like he actually lost. No, even, yeah. even if he could, he wouldn't, you know, he'll, and apparently he's to this day, the only boxer who has admitted to deliberately throwing a fight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He was very, uh, he was very open and honest about everything in this movie. There's a famous story where, uh, LaMotta watched this movie for the first time, with uh, one of his many wives and he was kind of disturbed by the depiction he was seeing. And he turned to his wife and he said, was I really that bad? And she said, you were so much worse. So, and that's something that he kind of came to admit and came to own and came to try to uh, redeem himself for a little bit later in his life. But I think this movie kind of helped him come around on that. Uh, But it's still like, it's jarring to see somebody like acting like this the entire time. So this all culminates in, I think the the emotional climax of the movie. I think is where uh, he accuses his brother of sleeping with Vicky, uh, who there's no evidence of this. Uh, you know, uh, Joey had got into this really really nasty fight with Salvi, where he's hitting him with the car door, and like it just turned into this all out brawl when he saw Salvi out drinking with him. But he never explained why he got him into that that much trouble, and so. Jake gets super suspicious and he confronts Vicky about it and she just loses her top. She says, yeah, yeah, I fucked everybody. I fucked everybody just to, just because she's sick of hearing all these baseless accusations. And that sends Jake over to his brother's house where he just barges in and beats the ever-loving tar out of the one person in the world who loves him unconditionally. Uh, and I kept gasping at that scene. Like, I've seen this movie five or six times and the violence in that scene is still so jarring. Like the screaming in the background, the kids crying and being put through the glass window and just like, and and just the fact of who it is that he's beating on, like this guy, the the, the one piece of family who's had his back. It's
1: also the one scene in the movie where the sound editors used uh, animal noises outside of the ring.
0: Right. Um, yeah.
1: They do that in the ring a couple of times to to kind of bring an element of, of uh, you know, to, to make it a little bit more visceral. But they bring it back in that scene which i I think you know it's in the most calm and domestic setting you could possibly imagine i I think that makes it all the more disturbing
0: yeah definitely definitely and it's just it's really jarring it's really affecting even after all this time because i think we all kind of realize and jake realizes everybody realizes that there's no real coming back from this he's cut off his lifeline now and so the very next thing that we see is his fight with Sugar Ray Leonard the very last fight of his professional boxing career, and the single bloodiest scene in the movie? Uh, some of the gore splattering on the judges, and like all these, and this is where Thelma Scumaker really, really shines with the the editing in this sequence. We get that great, like kind of Jaws esque dolly shot of, uh, of of Sugar Ray like looking so looming and impossibly huge, and the ring becomes like wider than it possibly could be in real life. And then it's just quick cuts, quick 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 cuts. Blow, 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 blow. Blood spray, like really realistic looking blood spray coming out of De Niro's face. Blood raining down his legs. His shorts are glistening with blood. He's he's a met. His eyes are swollen shut, but he never falls down. And that's his that's his one thing that he holds onto over and over again. That's the thing that makes him so fixated and so crazy and so obsessed. Is that he never backs down. And it's going to kill him. It doesn't matter. Like, this is a really terrible trait to have as somebody, to to, who, to never compromise, never back down. And uh, I think we see kind of the tragic consequences of this. It's just he starts falling apart. Like, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, he starts losing it. And that's where he becomes the overweight, club owner, terrible stand-up comedian of the later part of this movie. And again, like... The opening shot, the opening time we see this movie is, is De Niro post weight gain. Like, so we know where he's going to end up, but it's still really jarring to see him going from like, you know, even they were joking about him being fat in the scenes leading up to this fight, but he definitely wasn't. And then seeing him now, like just looking so unhealthy and so kind of pathetic, like it's very jarring. And the effect is, you know, I I still don't know if I condone like actors doing this to their bodies, like I feel like it's just not. I don't know if I don't know that it's worth the risk, but it was it was genuinely effective to not have a fat suit here.
1: Yeah, I've I've kind of had a similar like internal uh, debate I, I, watching The Exorcist again uh, this Halloween. Oh yeah, um, there are so many aspects of that movie where I'm just like, a you couldn't get away with that today, but b you should not be able to get away with that at all. It's That's not okay oh, to, no. put, to put your cast through. I don't care what the result is. Um, so I, I think I just kind of like, it, it's one of those things where I reconcile in my mind like, well, I'm happy we have this. Yeah. But I'm also very happy you couldn't do this today, um, along with the entirety of the movie Apocalypse Now.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Everything that went into that. Yeah, you don't want, like, people firing shotguns on your set or, or just generally going crazy. like
1: Yeah, and, like, I really don't want to, like, valorize or romanticize any sort of, like, abusive tendencies on a set or, or dangerous uh, conditions on a set. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that's... I, I, you know, I definitely take that more seriously now than I maybe did when I was like, oh, you know, you hear all these cool stories about, you know... Uh, rough and tumble filmmakers making their dream project at any cost even the well-being of their of their cast and crew and uh so yeah it's it's i i, I try to t- separate the like aesthetic result in the movie from the like actual moral implications of
0: and it, and it helps too that it. this was de niro pushing for this like and not yeah, Scorsese sure. asking him to do this like i don't yeah. think scorsese would have thought to ask him to do this um as as we see with the irishman you know he'd rather just use special effects to uh age right. him whether whether you whether that worked out or not i don't know um but yeah where we're he's he's kind of in this sad like coda of his life it results with him getting sent to prison for uh he was introducing some guys to some underage women in his club and i think the scene of him in the jail cell might be the single best piece of acting that De Niro's ever done. Like just it's, that one isolated it's, scene. It's devastating. It is like, absolutely devastating.
1: I, 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 including like down to the way it's shot and lit, the the little slat of light that's like at the very end of the scene illuminating just his arm, but also like just the the screaming and it was those were padded walls, but like it, they apparently, don't look like it, it. Yeah. They don't look like it, they don't sound like it, and also by the like after like a couple takes, De Niro like actually couldn't really hear anything anymore, yeah. so like they had to stop. Um, oh, it's it's oh man, I I I can't even articulate it because it's not really a scene about words. It's it's entirely about a catharsis, and
0: it is, and it's not just he's not angry that uh he's been arrested this is no oh no the culmination so of all the bad decisions that he's made here he is he's overweight and he's in jail and he's not the champ and he doesn't have a wife and his kids have left him and he's he's got nothing left and he's just kind of this joke uh and that's just not you know whatever uh, everything that he gave up in his life all the ways he treated people were just in service of this this destiny he saw for himself as the champion and uh it was all for nothing. It was, it was just all for nothing. And he, he ruined lives. And I think everything's just kind of catching up to him in that moment. And it's a showy moment, but it is still like emotionally authentic, I think. Um, and that's kind of where the movie, it's just about where the movie ends. We get, uh, uh he, he has to take his, uh, championship belt and break it up with a hammer to try and get the jewels out. Cause he's not willing to sell the whole belt. He just wants to take the jewels, Uh, But that doesn't even work for him. And then he winds up playing these shitty little clubs. I loved how shitty the club in New York was, by the Mm -hmm. way, because like it's basically like it's too small to have a stage like that. You I've seen I've been in bars like that in the past. That is too small to have a stage. And he doesn't even have like a wings to go back to. He has to sit there while this like kind of third rate burlesque dancer is like doing her act like two feet away from him. He's just sitting there smoking crankily and like snapping at hecklers.
1: He also just sounds so tired the whole time he's like he's introducing her. He's just like, uh, fuck, fuck you. Yeah, the horse you rode in on,
0: yeah, he doesn't even have the enthusiasm. At least when you see him in his club down in Miami, he's like <laughs> he's living it up. He's having fun. Like he's terrible at what he does, but he's having fun. Right. like right. He's, he's rubbing a bike on a sexy girl to see what it sounds like. Like, you know, he he's 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 doing well, like being a schmooze. And here it's just like the life is beaten out of him. And we get that final moment of him repeating that monologue from On the Waterfront in the Mirror, uh, which has led to a lot of confusion because for years I thought this monologue was from this movie. And then I found out it was from uh, On the Waterfront. But yeah, yeah. So I think it's one of those things like, um, I don't know, like uh, multiple lines can make it into multiple iconic movies, singing in the rain and both singing in the rain and Clockwork Orange, you know, stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Well also like I mean technically none of the songs from singing in the rain are from singing in the rain. Right yeah so, yeah it's true with most MGM musicals. Still, which still blows my mind but yeah. you know. Um yeah so so Steve uh, what
0: what um what about this movie didn't work for you? So here's here's my one thing that I'm sticking with. Um there's kind of a personal thing of just not I don't know it's it's difficult for me to watch this much like abuse and like violence and and just raw rage going on all the time even though I understand where it's coming from I I don't know if this is a hot take or not I feel like this movie gets a little soggy in the middle I think I think there are stretches where the point has been made like we have a really good understanding of who Jake is and why he is the way he is and I feel like some of these scenes could have been pared down um and and there there are moments in the middle of this movie kind of between the two Sugar Ray fights that are just kind of lost to me. Like they kind of they kind of leave my head. And every time I watch it, I'm just like, oh, I don't remember any of this at all. I find I'm remembering, I'm remembering overall. I think overall thematically, this movie is brilliant. I think this is a brilliant uh, demonstration of performance and of craft. Uh, but there's just that little bit in the middle. I think that could have been tighter. And and Scorsese is not a filmmaker who does concise. Um, that's not really his jam. I understand that. I think it's just for me there are moments that you forget about. There there's just a lot of kind of uh um kind of background scenes, you know.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I actually, I, I have not too dissimilar of a it's a really a quibble. Um I think it's like kind of a, a bit of a structuring problem that takes place uh between the, you know, uh falling out with Joey. Mm-hmm. There's there's two more fights after that. There's one where he is kind of, uh, it, it's the one where the camera goes through the ropes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, I still can't entirely figure out what it's doing. It, like, it, all the scenes following that are phenomenal, but in terms of, like, their placement in the movie, like, I can't really figure out what that one's doing there. And then there's an interlude scene where he calls Joey, um, doesn't say anything, and then it cuts to his sugar, his final Sugar Ray fight, where he, you know, gets completely clobbered. And in my mind, I always, like, put, put that final scene right after his falling out with joey yeah and so there's always like it it just feels off i wouldn't necessarily take any of those scenes out but i i I just don't The fight doesn't feel right there the one uh, the one where the camera goes through the ropes and i don't know where i would put it it just it, it feels like there's a little little bit of of structure uh, and and maybe, right there. That maybe that's just right.
0: like I'm comparing it to other Scorsese films, which I shouldn't necessarily do. But none of his other films, uh, even the really long ones, feel like they have those lulls. I mean, The Irishman definitely does. I've, I've got a lot of issues with The Irishman, but like uh, the, most of them, they, they don't. Even when they're long, they don't feel like they've got those soggy moments. And and that's the only thing that's kind of standing out to me. I don't know. What do you What do you think, Nicole? Where does where this one come down for you? Um,
2: I mean. I have. I think you guys have probably seen this a lot more than I have. Mm. But I mean, I would agree. Like I, the the fight scenes. I honestly, not having seen them as much, like I was like, oh yeah, that that one wasn't just the same as the other one because they they did. There were so many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I just <sighs> there were parts of it that were just so hard to watch. Not just the violence, but there's also like so many they especially at the beginning there were a lot of like slurs and like yeah, a lot of the body shaming and fat shaming. And like, I know it, it makes sense in the movie, but it it just makes it just that
0: much harder to watch. Like it it can be for sure. Like, yeah, like I said, these are the most toxic men of all time. Like they are, they're racist and they're sexist and they're homophobic. And it's just kind of, it was the way it was, you know, like they weren't thinking about things like we're thinking about things now. I do want to mention one last thing is that the scene where he reunites with Joey in the uh, in New York, like after his kind of downfall, the, the noteworthy scene part about that, firstly, like Joey immediately ignores him, which I like. There is no pause for recognition. It's like, nope, fuck, keep going, keep going. And he follows him and just kind of forces him into an embrace. But you notice there's never an apology. There's never a moment of I'm sorry. Like, so we're, we're, we still get the sense that Jake really hasn't, changed whether or not he successfully like worms his way back into joey's life which you suspect he does um whether or not he's successful in that he still hasn't really changed on a fundamental level he's still not capable of seeing his own faults like or or expressing remorse in a in a healthy way
2: yeah i think what truly amazes me and i didn't learn this until when we watched this Mm. you know we're talking about how he's so toxic and this is going to kill him. And like, he did, he lived to be 95. Like, how is that?
0: 95? possible? It's, it's, it's crazy. Like <laughs> he died in 2017. Jake yeah. Lomata. That's crazy to me. Like for uh, that's, that's a long he, time for a boxer. Like he, he literally never went down. No, so, he literally so he, he died of pneumonia. So.
2: It's not like he had dementia. I mean, he oh might my have.
0: God. yeah, I, that's, <sighs> it's crazy to me that he, he had such a long life. I mean, you know, that, fascinating figure. fascinating figure for sure. I don't know. I don't know what to make of his the later half of his life, but uh definitely an interesting person and uh uh he's been very vocal about this movie. He actually wanted to play the lead in this movie when they first announced making it and uh Martin Scorsese and the producer had to kind of very gently talk him down <laughs> without saying like you're a terrible actor, Jake. Yeah. You know, they have to convey you're a terrible actor, but I don't I'm not going to say that.
1: Basically, they just yeah. had to have
0: De Niro come in and smooth it over, and just say, "Look, this is this is the best actor in the world, right here. He's well, going to playing you."
1: Robert De Niro to play you? Like, yeah, come
0: on. yeah, come on. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, that is all I've got on Raging Bull. Uh, do we have anything else we want to say before we wrap up? Um, I, I'm just going to say
1: that um, for for people new to the film, you know, it the the fight scenes do really kind of take precedence the first time you watch it. But I would really encourage. Watching it again and uh, with multiple viewings, I think other elements of the movie, the the uh, characters of of Vicky and Joey, um, and those performances, the editing, the um, the cinematography, the 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 ambiance of this time period that it creates, all kind of come to the fore a lot more. And those are elements of the film that are they're a lot more um, uh, uh, subdued, but mm-hmm. I've kind of come to appreciate them just as much right alongside the fight scenes where the, the first time I saw it this was just kind of a series of fight scenes surrounded by domestic abuse yeah um, yeah yeah <laughs> uh, so I, I mean and, and I mean it is literally that yeah. but um, there is so much more to dig into and appreciate here and and the hard work of, of a lot of people that made this happen um, I, I think it's well worth the time uh, to 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 you don't really give it additional attention. And you're right though. I think I need to change the way I frame it saying I love raging bull is, is like a really weird <laughs> thing to say. It's kind of like if someone was like, I love Schindler's list. It's like, oh, yeah, I put
0: it on the background, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: about this guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. How about you, Nicole? Yeah. Any, any final thoughts on this?
2: Um, I don't know. I think,
0: no, no worries. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think for me, like, I think, I think where I kind of come down on this is that this might be Scorsese's best film. It's just not my favorite. I think, uh, it, or yeah. I don't. I don't think it's many people's favorites. Like, I think his other movies are more lovable. Uh, they're more easily watchable. They're, they're more fun. Even the heavy ones are still more fun than this. Yeah, I, I, I would. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh,
2: no, I was just cause I think the amazing thing is like a lot of his other movies have redeeming characteristics in their you know, lead actors but like because this one is based on a real person, they they couldn't just fake that and No. No. <laughs> and that's, you know, kind of what they had
0: to do. I I think it's amazing as a piece of like redemptive cinema as as something that like Scorsese f- uh, was working through his demons with this. He was working through, like, what it felt to be him at this moment, you know, struggling with his addiction, with his depression, with with feeling like the eyes of the world are on him and that he's not measuring up and, like, all of this other stuff. Like, so he was, he was working through a lot. And it really cannot be overstated how uh, amazing these performances are. All of them across the board are just brilliant. Uh, even Coach from Cheers is a very scary uh, <laughs> a mob boss in this movie, so, like... I I, it's it's definitely I mean, it's a hard recommend. Don't get me wrong. Don't mistake my my quibbles about it at all. It is a hard recommend. I think, yeah, if you are looking at it for the first time, don't go in expecting a boxing movie. Don't go in expecting Rocky uh, because this will not be that. Um, And it's really not a boxing movie at all. Like I said, it's not really a sports movie. It's a movie about. Toxic masculinity and the effects it can take on your on although, your life.
2: Although that is kind of why it was how it got made, because Rocky had come out and people were very into boxing movies, so it, it yeah did, you're it right get made for that reason.
0: Yeah, Nicole yeah. actually was looking this up. There were like, well, how many boxing movies? I think it was five. There were like there the were year. five at the time that this was coming out. Yeah, like between seventy nine and eighty. Like that's crazy that there are so many boxing movies in the market right, there, including another Rocky movie. So like you know it was in the zeitgeist, and I think this. Really effectively, kind of takes the wind out of that genre a bit, and like it delivered something that I don't think people were expecting.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of like how um, it's it's kind of been a saying in throughout film history, like the best m- religious movies are made by atheists. Yeah, um, yeah, like like uh, Pierre Paolo Pasolini's uh, Gospel According to Saint Matthew is yeah. is a wonderful film. Um, he's he is a staunch atheist. Um, I think a similar thing could be said about about sports and, and boxing in this case because Scorsese who as you said earlier Steve had zero you know athletic capability and was not interested at all in boxing yeah really found an emotional core that that speaks to something more universal and a lot more human um, that, that he just kind of channeled through boxing and in the process made kind of the definitive boxing movie weirdly enough like it's the FI ranked it it's top sports film of all time, yeah. despite its complete disinterest with the actual mechanics of of the
0: sport. Yeah, so. it's true. Yeah. It's true. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I think we're probably the first people to ever talk about this movie. I think we've kind of discovered it. I hope <laughs> we can uh, effectively disseminate it to the world. Um, so thank- I'm really
1: happy that we can share this with others. <laughs>
0: oh, you're you're welcome, world. You're welcome. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much for being here and for Thanks watching for the movie me. with me. And uh, Mike, thank you as well. Do you have anything you want to plug or let people know about? Well, only because James uh,
1: is is making me plug it. He's holding it down in my head. Um, yeah, me and uh, me and my friend James, who uh, both went to school with Steve, we have uh, our own podcast uh, about cult films. It's called The Cult Standard. Uh, where we uh, every episode we look at a different movie that has gained a cult following over time. Uh, look at maybe why that passion has formed around the movie and decide whether or not we would uh, ultimately want to be become members of that cult ourselves. Um, and currently we have uh, we're, we're running a bit heavy on membership cards. We've, we've joined quite a few. Excellent. So, um, yeah, and then and then also a spinoff podcast that where we just go through Courage the Cowardly Dog because. <laughs> Because, hey, we're all nostalgic for our childhoods. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh, that no, it's called Curse the Cowardly Podcast, both on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that jazz.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Oh, oh yeah. One Hold more on. Th- oh, oh.
2: So you didn't ask me if I wanted to plug
0: anything. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm didn't so didn't sorry. Just... I thought you didn't. I didn't know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I apologize.
2: I'm only going to do this because I feel like it fits in with the this. So, so you know, if, if you want to get in shape for boxing... Mm-hmm. I am a personal trainer. Yes. And you can follow me on Instagram. I'm NVRX Fitness. You can probably just find Steve's podcast. And
0: and, and follow her from there. there. Yeah, she's doing like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to gloss that over. Last time you didn't want to plug it, so I just well, wanted to.
2: Well, the movie was very different.
0: This is a very, yeah, yeah. Mulade <laughs> is not a very uh, boxing heavy movie. Yeah. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We are RogersListPod at gmail.com and on Twitter, on Instagram. You can check that out for a lot of little bonus facts about the movies. Uh, be sure to tune in next week. I'm talking about a movie I have not seen and really know nothing about. Uh, this is the uh, The Grey Zone, directed by one of my favorite character actors, Tim Blake Nelson. I didn't know he directed a movie at all, what? let alone a great movie, apparently. So... I'm very excited to dig into this one and see what this is all about. The gray zone. All right. So I will see you all next time for that one. And, uh, ding, 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 ding. That's the, that's the, that's the bell. Ding, ding. I got it.